Hello and welcome to That One Case, the podcast where lawyers share stories of the cases that influence their careers. My guest today is Ron Coleman, partner at Dillon Law Group in New York. Ron is a commercial litigator whose practice areas include trademarks, business law, commercial litigation and more. And on today's show, Ron shares with us the story of The Slants, a Portland-based band that wanted to trademark their name. He tells us how the result would end up challenging one of the most prominent trademark acts in the US and how this single case and its decision would go down in history. I think I first got involved in the case in 2014 when their lawyer who had been representing them in their attempt to register the, their, the name of their band, The Slants, as a trademark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office called me up and said, listen, I, I see that you've written about our case. We, you, you saw that we were refused a registration under the Lanham Act Section 2A, which prohibits the registration of a disparaging trademark. You seem to be interested in this kind of thing. You seem to be interested in doing pro bono work. That's the worst thing you ever want to hear on a phone call. This might be a really interesting case. It might go somewhere. Maybe you'll be the one to change the law. And I've heard this a million times. But I said, sure let me speak to your client. And I was intrigued, and I did think that this was perhaps the case that might do it, and I was right. That was 2014, and uh, you know I spent three or four years on the case, and finally uh, the Supreme Court ruling came down in, I guess it was 2017. Wow. So so talk us through the, the development of this case then. So where was it at when you took it on, and, and, and how did it progress? Well, it actually had existed before, as I said, he had, they had a lawyer who was not a litigator, uh, but someone who did sort of light trademark work as part of his sort of normal corporate practice. The Slants had made this registration, uh, this application to register their trademark. Slants, just to be very clear, is an obscure nickname for Asians, one that I never heard growing up on the streets of Brooklyn. As I said, it's, it's obscure. Now, I had been involved in this issue of the, um, the American trademark statute, which prohibited the registration of disparaging trademarks. When I began to notice, I have a blog, I should be clear. Um, I really pretty much have retired it now, but it, it went for about 15 years, it was a very uh, dominant voice in trademark thinking. And I say that with my accustomed modesty, but I know a lot of people read it. And I began to notice, as a number of other people in the profession did, that there was real inconsistency in the way the Patent and Trademark Office was treating the application of Section 2A, again, which the prohibition on disparaging trademarks. They were prohibiting registration of marks that involved ethnic slurs, but not marks that involved other sorts of slurs, especially involving sexual behavior. Uh, so there were lots of marks involving queer and gay, things like that. And the argument had been that this is reappropriation, that the people who were once called slurs reappropriated those slurs to demonstrate their defiance of being marginalized and wore it as a badge of pride. And that's a very common social phenomenon. Uh, but it wasn't permitted in the case of ethnic slurs. And it was very clear to me that the reason for this was they didn't want to register the N-word. And I'm not going to give you any problems by saying it. I don't want you to get kicked off um, Apple Podcasts or whatever like that. So, But it was very clear that a policy was in place that was meant to avoid the registration of one word 
and everyone else in the world who had good business reasons or free speech reasons for um, objecting to this or for wanting to have a registration was not going to be permitted to do so. As we looked into the law a little bit more, we realized that this was not something that could be sustained under First Amendment law. The United States Constitution, of course, which protects free speech, has been interpreted by the courts to prohibit the government from administering the benefits that are available to all comers based on viewpoint discrimination. The only there are, are narrow exceptions to that. For example, if if you're having if the government has a cultural program and it's trying to promote a historical recognition of American Indians, you know, in the state of New Jersey, um, you can't apply. You can't expect that if you apply for a grant that talks about how bad the Indians really were compared to the conquistadors or, or the or the English, that your your viewpoint is going to be is going to be accepted because the purpose of the program is to say X. But when you have a program of general application like registering trademarks where there's not supposed to be any value judgment made, it was problematic. The existing law that controlled the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office um, under the what, it, what was now the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, historically it had been a different court, was that there was no constitutional right to a trademark registration. We were aware of that. We challenged that law on its face as being unconstitutional. We went through the process of appealing it in the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, which is the administrative law organ within the Patent and Trademark Office. They said we're bound by the precedent. We then appealed it to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the intermediate state um, appellate court between an agency and the U.S. Supreme Court. And they said, we're also bound by the precedent, even though we think there might be a problem with this precedent based on the development of First Amendment jurisprudence and based on changes in how the statute is administered in terms of trademark registration. To make a long story short, they said we are the only way that we could change that precedent would be if the court were to rule en banc, meaning all the members of the court, as opposed to a panel of three judges, were to only they can reverse an earlier precedent of this court. That was taken by us as a very broad hint that we should apply for en banc reconsideration. While we were doing that, we got a notice from the court that they, that they had polled themselves, all the judges of the circuit had polled themselves on their own initiative. They had voted to vacate the uh, affirmance of the Patent and Trademark Office decision to hear the case en banc. We, they gave us six weeks to, to file new briefs, which we did, uh, and all of a sudden the land rush was on. They also gave permission to any parties that wanted to file front of the court briefs. And the reason that this was of interest. It was what happened was the whole world started filing briefs. The, the American Civil Liberties Union, the International Trademark Association. Why did this catch people's attention? Because meanwhile, while this all was going on, the trademark registration of the Washington Redskins American football team was being challenged on this basis. And the procedural aspects of that are tricky because it was retro. It was meant to be a retroactive challenge, but that was going through another circuit because they took a different course through the system. And speaking of legal realism, it was very clear to everyone that the the conscience of the court system, whether it was the federal circuit itself or, or some some magic 
cabal that meets, we don't know, but our case made a much better case to address the constitutionality of Section 2A than the Redskins case, because the Redskins case was being objected to by people who were, spe were speaking in the name of um, um, American Indians, or as they're called, Native Americans. But be that as it may, the politics of ruling on behalf of the, uh, of the Redskins to find this unconstitutional versus the politics of a reappropriation argument um, was, was an easy choice. So the Federal Circuit may be in a race with the Fourth Circuit in Virginia, uh, coming out of Virginia, I don't really know. But at the end of the day, the, uh, I had the incredible opportunity of arguing in front of 12 judges in person. Um, and uh, we, we won 8-3 or 8-3 eight, eight, to 1, I think. It was one, you know, unclear. But the point is we won big. So what happened next was that the United States Patent and Trademark Office uh, asked the Supreme Court for a writ of certiorari, which means permission to review the case. Uh, everyone agreed that the Supreme Court would review the case because a statute that had been in place for uh, since, since the after World War II a major federal statute and a constitutional issue were all um, in play. The Supreme Court did grant cert. We did go to the Supreme Court. We won eight nothing. It was a great experience. I did not argue myself in front of the Supreme Court, but it was a transformative case for me. I had the opportunity to to make new law. The case that was essentially my case, and I was lead counsel, is being studied in law schools to this day. It's cited in Supreme Court and other opinions. Uh, have the opportunity to do a lot of media and become considered um, a sort of authority on First Amendment law, which I think is a bit of a stretch. But uh, I th one of the things I'm most proud about with respect to that case was that we received um, recognition for doing it pro bono. Uh, and when I accepted the reward, the, that award on behalf of, the, of my firm at the time, and I was given about two minutes to speak, from the American Bar Association Intellectual Property section, I said, ladies and gentlemen, this would never have happened if we hadn't done it pro bono because overwhelmingly small parties do not get the opportunity to have dedicated advocacy. We did about half a million dollars worth of free work on this case. Um, the court would have been placed with in, the, in the situation of, of having to decide between the PTO and the Redskins. It would be, everything would be different. And I, I hope that people leave from here with the understanding of why we have to, you know, why we have to do work on behalf of the public interest. And um, I don't know if I had any effect, but that was, you know, that was a very nice opportunity, you know, recognition for us. And, you know, professionally after that, I also have the opportunity, you know, it, it gives me the ability to demonstrate to people that I could take a case all the way and win it. Yeah. Which I did. No, congratulations. I mean, fantastic. Really, really cool. I also find it interesting that it's these sort of seemingly very small cases that are super fringe and uh, unheard of, right? And then suddenly it can be can turn into something that can can have quite a quite a significant impact on on the larger picture. Uh, so I find that really interesting. This certainly was, and in fact, it, it turned out it was so fringe that last year Simon Tam, who was the lead um, petitioner told us that he, did, you know, he didn't really think the slants were going to be doing any more music and he was probably going to let the registration lapse. <laughs> and my partner and I at the time said, Simon, I don't care if you pull out a, a guitar and play in the subway once a year, you're keeping that trademark. 
It's amazing that these seemingly small cases can have such enormous knock-on effects, and I certainly hope uh, that after all the hard work, the band doesn't let that trademark lapse. My thanks to Ron for sharing his story with us today. If you want to find out more about Ron and Dylan Law Group, you can find all the links in the show notes over at thatonecase.com. And if you did enjoy today's episode, please do share it with someone you think would also find it interesting. All the details on how to do so are over at thatonecase.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next time as Joshua Barron tells us the story of that one case. 